The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome. I'm Sarah Ellison, a reporter at The Post. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking to Ginger Z. She is the chief meteorologist for ABC News, and she has been bringing us the weather for almost 10 years. She's now covering climate change. Um, but this morning, we want to talk to her about something a little more personal. She has a new book out called A Little Closer to Home, and it is a follow-up on a book she wrote a few years ago called Natural Disaster. Um, that was a wonderful book, and we're happy to have you. Welcome, Ginger. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's great to be with everybody. Um, so you have talked about your first book in which you revealed your battle with depression as Ginger Light. What mm -hmm. do you mean by that? So, you know, that first book, I did not intend to write at all. I went to the publisher thinking I could write a baby book about weather because I was pregnant with my first son and I was looking for weather books. Uh, never considered myself a writer because I had told myself years and years before that I was just a math and science and that's what I got into becoming a scientist. But when I went to that publisher, I told them about the character I thought would be great for this baby book that I thought I could handle like 60 words and a bunch of pictures. And then the publisher, Wendy, said, you know, I think that's a, a chapter book for maybe middle grade. And so write that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm actually not a writer. And then she, I went and wrote it, came back, and they were like, we want you to write a trilogy. Okay. And so I, the, the whole process of getting to natural disaster was not to write a memoir. It was to write this baby book turned middle grade book. Then I start talking about what adventures I will base the characters, you know, story on within my own life and I'm just talking spitballing with Wendy and then she's like that story from your personal life that is a book and that whole book I was written at 35,000 feet I was traveling for Dancing with the Stars and it really feels like 35,000 foot look at my life and then this next book with full intention of writing tools for people to take away in their mental health journey was written from my couch here in my basement in a pandemic. And I think it feels like that. So that first one being at 35,000 feet was certainly light. Yeah. Um, so in this book, you very early on reveal that you had an abortion. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that time with us and what led you to that decision. So the whole book is about healing and you have to heal from trauma. Everybody has different traumas. Um, your trauma is not gonna be the same as my trauma, but if I didn't share more about my trauma, uh, then I don't know that the book would mean as much because people wouldn't be able to connect to some sort of trauma in the story. So mine, I use both uh, date rape and abortion as traumas. And I have learned through a decade of really intense focused therapy that no matter your trauma, you can't delete it from your life, which is what I tried to do for the longest time with many events and traumas. Instead of deleting it, you have to process it and move through it. Now, I had to go back, uncover the wound that I had kind of covered up with dirt and run away from for so long so that I could learn how to treat traumas going forward. And that's what this book is about. No matter what the trauma is in your life, it's about digging in and maintaining the healing because it's not like 
you know, it's like the gym. You don't, it's like your physical health. You don't just get a personal trainer. You start working out so hardcore and you get in there and get deep and you, you know, eat right for six months and you look great and then you stop and everything stays. That's not how mental health or recovering from trauma like abortion or date rape for me was. It's something that it will be a forever journey, but I think that this book will bring a realistic twist to people that are on this journey, no matter what their trauma is, to help them realize that they can find healing. It just takes hard work. And what kind of work do you bring to that healing? Um, I'm sure people would be very interested to hear what you did in order to come back from those traumas. Yeah, and, and I think identifying them first, being transparent about them. Now, I don't think everybody needs to be running around and, and telling our deepest, darkest secrets necessarily, but could and should you write it down so that you can tell your narrative and be clear on your narrative? Absolutely. Now, could from that point, once you've written it down, to share it with someone else, a professional, someone within your team, as I call it, someone within your trusted um, you know, circle, judgment-free, and, and most of the time they will be far less judging than you imagine them to be, that gives you great power and healing. And then from that point, it's taking those and learning from them as to how to develop this tool bag to, to deal with how we react to trauma in future. And that, you know, it's a, control is a, is a tricky word because I use it a lot in the book for it with a negative connotation. But when you can control your mental health, meaning that you can really take charge and prioritize your mental health, that is what I would encourage people to take from this book and from these moments of trauma. So to do that, for me, I go to my personal trainer of my brain every week. It's number one for me. I cannot miss it. Uh, that is my therapist. I have the privilege, the financial support or financial ability, the support from my family to do this, but I want everybody to be able to have that. Wouldn't it be great if everybody had the ability to have true focused for their diagnosis, personal training for the brain. And then for those that even can't get there yet, the writing, I do that as much as I can every day. People might call it journaling, but I always think even in the middle of the day, if I just have a thought, writing it out and putting words to your feelings or emotions is so easy and so therapeutic. And then I call the meditation that I've gotten very into sit-ups for the brain. For some people, it could be prayer. Um, for others, it could be um, guided meditation. It can be active meditation like yoga. There are so many types, but it's just prioritizing. And I always, I actually drew it out. Oh, I do have it up here. This is kind of ridiculous. I made my own prop. But if we made a food pyramid of health, right? I put mental health at the base with the sleep and the nutrition, movement and your spirituality, and then physical health and everything else on top. And that is how I kind of have been running my life to get through past their, a trauma and to get ready. Uh, for any storms that come in the future. Um, just back to your personal experience, you, when you talk about your abortion in the book, you reveal that it led you to a second suicide attempt. I'm wondering if you can put our audience sort of in that moment and talk about what you were grappling with at the time that led you to that point. So my story in the book about abortion is my story, and it's, you know, won't be like anyone else's, and I only use it to share how to heal from trauma. But in that moment, um, in the moment that I found out I was pregnant, and the moments that led up to me not knowing a lot about how I got there, um, 
it was the first emotion was joy. And this is the hardest part to talk about. I was so excited because I had always wanted to be a mother. Here I am taking this pregnancy test in a dirty, you know, Flint, Flint, Michigan TV bathroom, a uh, TV station bathroom. And then that joy was so quickly replaced with absolute terrifying fear that overwhelmed me um, with the I don't know, the I have no idea how I got here. I cannot believe this is the position I'm in and the fear of what would happen either way. I didn't see a future and, and even to the point, as I describe in the book, in my experience, I don't think I was ever ready to make that choice. I, 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 as soon as I woke up from the anesthetic, I couldn't believe it. I still was kind of in, I think for years was in disbelief and really used shock um, kind of to, to divert my attention away. But that next day is when the epitome of shame and the hormonal drop-off started coming together. And my inability to share with others, because I told no one, I mean, I had one person in my life that knew what had gone on and I was telling nobody else. That isolation is what led me to, I think, in part, the darkest days of my life. And they just kept getting darker. And I do think that hormones were part of it, but I think that the guilt and shame were what overtook me. And I can't, all I can remember that morning that I woke up that morning was blackness. And I've spoken, I've had the opportunity to speak to groups where, you know, you'll have 800 parents in a room. All of them have lost their children dying by suicide. And I'm there to speak to them. And, and I think a lot of them still want the answer. What could I have done? What if we had done this? And I don't know if there's a right answer in that moment, but at least in my story, I could not see tomorrow. I couldn't see that I could or should live on. And so that intense feeling of the shades, not just coming down, but, but covering. I mean, full on blackness. I just wanted to die. I had nothing else. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people have gotten there. And I, I go back to the parents and what I would tell them and what I would tell myself on that day is this level of shame and guilt, while it's real, and it will matter years from now for your whole life. You can't delete this moment. This is not going anywhere, but it is part of your story. It's something that you have to move through. And now I feel the great responsibility of hopefully changing some of the conversation into education, prevention, and making sure that people don't have to get to that point. What do you think people don't understand about that decision. I think people are often mystified about that choice to try to take one's own life. What would you say to people who are trying to understand why someone would get to that point or how someone gets to that point? There are so many different types and I can only really speak from my experiences and I had two. Uh, there's no way out in that moment to you. There is no other answer. Um, for some people, it's more impulsive. Mine certainly was a, I felt like it was on its way down. I could have felt the spiral in both cases. Um, 
there is, there's no, there's no light at all. Black is all I can explain it as. And, and the only thing I can really tell other people is that the worst part was as dark as I got in those places. And especially that day, I was shining my brightest on the outside. That's where I used, I guess, my acting ability to be able to show people something that I didn't want them to know. This was my decision. This was the only thing I could control. And that was the ending of my life. And I think, you know, in the book, I talk about how that day I went and I took all of the pills in a park and I expected it to just happen like this. And it didn't. And I was mystified, speaking of mystified. And I went back to my then boyfriend's house and just was like waiting. It was the strangest experience because I, I really didn't thankfully know enough about uh, what I was doing, even though I knew more than the first time. And then my mom called and she said, you know, the last couple of days I've noticed your, your energy and your mood. And this is obviously just only a couple of years after I had a different suicide attempt. She said, I just don't want you to be alone right now. And I agreed to go shopping with her. The morning after I had taken a family-sized bottle of pills that can kill you, they just take a long time, um, and I went shopping with her, and I smiled through it all, and even with my mother, the person who knows me best, I was able to put on a show great enough that I was, and, I, and, and, and the, the strangest way, I, I, I liked it. I liked that I could... I didn't want it to happen in front of her. I didn't want any of those things, but I just, I was done. I was really, really done. And um, thankfully in the book, you'll read more about what happens after. Um, but when I get to the point of being very ill, uh, my then boyfriend takes me to the hospital and um, they're able to save my life. And I think it was shocking in so many ways, but especially to my mom who had spent a couple of hours with me during the day to see her daughter that night um, nearly lose her life. and. I, I think about that a lot as a parent now. Um, I don't know what else to, you know, I don't even know what it would feel like for my own child, except for that I have allowed myself to release the guilt um, that I felt for a long time for putting my parents and my then boyfriend and all these people um, in that place because I was sick. It's fascinating. Um, and I'm so sorry you had to go through that. When you made the decision to write this book um, mm -hmm. and talk about the suicide attempt and also your abortion, abortion is a topic that is very much in the news. And I'm wondering if you thought about the repercussions of revealing the choice to have an abortion, what kind of blowback you might face. And were you nervous about that and the way that it might be received? Yeah. I think it would be, you know, you would be wildly out of touch if you didn't have some sort of um, reaction to what you might anticipate people saying or thinking about you. But what my first book taught me is that when I revealed that I went all the way to the lengths of going to a mental health hospital to finally take charge of my mental health, people still raise their eyebrows about that. They're like, oh, you know, we're not yet to the place societally where where we can accept 
that part of the stigma. A lot of people will say, oh, I have depression or I have anxiety. I go to a therapist and all of those kind of get in the, okay, we're all comfy. But as soon as I say hospital, you're like, oh, what's going on with her? That realization that I was going to tell the world that was probably even harder because it was the first time an executive level people pleaser, somebody who just wanted to be perfect her whole life, was finally saying, here's my story. And I guess I don't care what you think. I really want to tell my story because I know, and Natural Disaster proved this to me, that it is going to help someone else and impact someone else. You hear that all the time. It's like, oh, talking, you're so brave, you're so this. No, really, it helps people. I still get comments, emails today that say you saved my life. So if someone's not going to like me because of something I did or chose in my past, first of all, they don't know me, right? They don't know the levels of identity that become who I really am. That's up to me. And I have been so grateful for social media and for all of these other things because they've actually helped me to find the core of who I am. Pretty much at this point, you could say anything to me. I'm a little more tender with my family because <laughs> I don't like people coming at them. But I feel like the, I just read Will Smith's book and he had a great way to say it. I approve of me. And I approve of what I'm doing with my message and with my choices and my past. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, you talk a lot about, you mentioned stigma, um, and you talk a lot about the stigma around mental health challenges. I want to ask you two things about that. Why do you think that stigma persists? And how can we as a society get rid of it? You're doing your part by revealing this about someone who seems very sunny and, and people might not have suspected was, you know, somebody was dealing with all this, but how do we do something um, to rectify the stigma that still surrounds mental health challenges? The first part is realizing that because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's so hard. Even my son, who's now six, but was five this summer when I had what I like to call a gray day. And thankfully, I don't have those as often. But it was a big real, you know, kind of realization for me as to how I think we can treat it from day one for kids, for teens, for adults. I was crying. I was on the deck and I was kind of just having that gray day. And, and I didn't realize how close he was. And he came up and I was crying pretty heavily. And he said, Mommy, what's wrong? And in that moment, I just said what was wrong. Mommy doesn't feel well today. I'm sick. And he accepted that. Okay. And are you going to be better tomorrow? I could be. I couldn't be. But I'm going to do my best to go get help and make myself as well as I possibly can be. And all we can ask of people is to do the work to get to that wellness. You know, it's, it's, and then the same way, if we could just treat it, and this is the other hard part, is when I went to the hospital, when I needed that inpatient therapy, the one that really changed my life and allowed me to get the help that I needed, the diagnosis I needed, and the type of therapy I needed. We have to get to a place where we can say, like drug and alcohol rehabilitation, when somebody goes to drug or alcohol rehab, we say, well, good for them. I, I would, I'm edge on saying it's sexy, right? Like it's so good. Let's get there for mental health. Let's make it good for them. Because I admire the most out of people when they are doing hard work and they are maintaining their mental health. 
not easy. It doesn't just evaporate depression, anxiety. A lot of these um, diseases or disorders can't go away. Some of them require medication, but they all require work. And that's the part that I think that we really should find respectful, not, you know, turn off when we hear or, or have a stigma surrounding. We've heard a lot from some high profile athletes this year about their own struggles. Um, the tennis star Naomi Osaka, um, Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles. I'm wondering what you think or how important it is for people like that to come forward and talk about their own um, mental health. I love Simone. I mean, huge props to anyone that can take the stage and say, I'm ready to say this is who I am and and I don't care what you think because I saw backlash and and it's hard, you know, I can take it from me. It's hard when I see it to someone like Simone who I've I don't know well, but I know well enough that and I know she's a young girl and and watching the response to some of the people questioning her decision, calling her all of these things, I had to take a beat because it was hard to watch someone get attacked like that. And at the end of it, I realized she's just 20 years ahead of me. She's in the place where she knows herself and she knows what this means. And too bad if that's what people think or want to say because they think they need to be running harder and people need to run through and, and, and avoid um, all of the traumas or any of the mental health issues that will only get them to a worse place. You know, I, I saw people reacting already to my book and some of the negativity mostly has been so positive and I'm grateful for that. But when that negativity comes up, I immediately am able to put a mirror right up and realize that they are reflecting on their own lives. And I, I pray for them. I have great empathy for them. And I hope that they can find peace. But that's what I hope this can do, too, is maybe, maybe when I hold that mirror up, maybe it can help turn it around and realize that we can all take a moment and live the Betty White saying of stick to your own business. We'd all be in a better place <laughs> unless it can help somebody else. Um, I want to ask you about the people who are surrounding you in your own life. We have an audience question um, about your parents. This is from Patricia in Kansas, and she asks, how did your parents help or not help you through mental health problems? The 1980s, or any time before, I think was quite different, right? We didn't have, I say it in the book, but even in their divorce, like, Show me some hands of anybody who did divorce right in the 80s. Like it wasn't until Gwyneth Paltrow really gave us what uncoupling is supposed to look like. I look at my friends that are divorced now and I'm like, that's divorce? You guys are fantastic. Um, so I think that the same with mental health. I don't know that they had the tools, education, or societal anything to help me in the way I probably needed help. That said, my mom, as much as I talk about her in the book, and she did approve of the stories and how chaotic a lot of my young life was because of her own mental health challenges that couldn't get help. This is a woman who taught me how to be vulnerable, how to be transparent, and how to constantly work on myself to be the best version of me. That work ethic, I wrote her this morning and I said, on this day when, when I'm about to tell the world everything, I can't thank anybody but you because she is the woman who was there and unconditionally loved me. And I think without that base, I don't know what I would have done. Now, if I could go today and say, of course I could go back and do some scorecards with my parents and be like, this could have been a lot better. Um, 
but for where we were and what we had, I think they did a pretty great job. And I, and I always give props to my stepdad. My mom always thinks this is funny. She's like, I was there the whole time. But my stepdad is, is a social worker and his energy coming in was safe. And there cannot be more weight put into what that means for a child, safety, consistency, and, and having the education he did to help and, and to help us find help that will forever be deep in my heart of gratitude. Um, before you released this book, you were public about a previous suicide attempt, and it was just before you started at ABC News. I think a lot of people are fearful about what these kinds of revelations will do to their professional life. I'm wondering if you can talk about that juxtaposition of going public with something as private as a suicide attempt and then starting at ABC. I think it's the same as, and I'm grateful that my workplace and the managers I've had have been very open to understanding and learning about what mental health um, crises mean. Uh, it's just like had I had some other disease and been very sick right before I started. They shouldn't and wouldn't have judged it differently. The fact that I'm putting the hard work in, I am healthier and, and farther away from the black and gray days than I've ever been. And I think as long as I keep doing that, I think I'm the best employee. I'm, I'm a way better employee than I was even at the start. I mean, 20 years ago when I started, I was a terrible employee because of how you know, wrecked and spiraling I was in my personal life. So I think that I hope that that's why they see it. And I, I would be totally not open and, and transparent if I didn't tell you when I first released that first book, I thought, oh boy, I am never going to get hired after this. They're going to have to hold on to me. And then everyone's going to be like, I don't want that girl. That's not the case. We're not there. I'm going to put it out in the universe. We are well beyond that. And I'm really grateful to hopefully be a part of that shift. And you write about your husband. You've been married since 2014. Um, I'm wondering how has he helped you battle depression and be public about all of this? My mother-in-law's on here, by the way. So thank you for my husband. Um, he's, he's a special case. He has had his own mental health issues through his childhood, um, after his traumas, and he had completely different uh, way of reacting. But one thing that when I met him, I had started the hard work. I had been in the hospital about a year before. I had been in two times a week therapy. I had finally gotten into my diagnosis and gotten the right type of therapy. But when I first met him, I wasn't quite there yet. I was just finally getting over the hump of, I'm allowed to let someone love me and love myself. And he patiently, he'll tell you that I broke up with him twice. And I'll tell you that you can't break up with someone after you've gone on two dates. He was a little intense. Um, but I, he was so patient through the six months of processing that it was okay to be loved. And had he not had that patience and still didn't have the patience that he does today and the open understanding, that's the thing is people are like, oh, what'd your husband think when he read this book? Well, he knew everything. He's known everything. And he's accepted every single part of me, no matter how bad. In fact, sometimes he finds like he loves ex-boyfriend stories. He's a, he's a strange one uh, because he thinks they're entertaining and they're part of me and he loves all of me. That's love. And that's what I wanted to find within myself. 
I need to love all of those parts, even the parts that filled me with shame and guilt for so long. And he's been that guiding light. I wanna, um, we don't have a lot of time left, but I don't wanna let you go uh, without asking you a question about the important issues that you do cover at work. Um, we're in the middle of a moment of, of severe weather and um, climate change is something that you know so much about. I'm wondering if you can talk to us about what you're focusing on in 2022 as it relates to climate change and climate disasters. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic, I think, what the pandemic has meant to the science of medicine has been really enlightening for a lot of people in many different sciences. Climate science has had similar um, division. And I really hope that we can provide the clearest, most concise reporting on both misinformation and the evidence right in front of us so that we can get motivated to make change. And people don't like change. It's really uncomfortable. But that's the thing. Just like mental health, if we don't put our priorities straight, if we don't start caring for the atmosphere and the surface of the planet around us and actually make intentional decisions, then we're just going to be running just like somebody who hasn't attended to their mental health, hurting people all along the way. And hopefully, societally, in both places, we can get rid of stigmas and just get down to what is real and what we can really share. And that's what I hope to do. Um, there are a lot of ways to do that. I have big plans for the climate unit. I've been really working to get this started and um, we are well on our way. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much. I am afraid we have to leave it there. I have more questions, but thank you for the time you've given thank us you. this morning, Ginger. Thank you so much, um, Sarah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.